You're listening to a Southside Baptist Church podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. No truer words could be said. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we just love you. We give you glory because Jesus Christ lives. There are a multiplicity of religions around the world, belief systems, all of them based on man's ability to try to be good, all of them somehow focusing on a judgment in which the scales of of justice are tipped one way or the other according to whether our good deeds outweigh, outweigh our bad. But Lord, Christianity stands unique from all the religions of the world because God came down in the form and the flesh of man and he paved the way, made the way for man to be right with God, not based on any goodness, any merit that we might try to to have, but Lord, on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so Lord, we give you glory. We pray, dear Lord, we ask you now, dear Lord, to speak to us through your word. And Lord, for everything to be according to your plan, your purpose, your will. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask you to remain standing. And thank you, uh, praise team. And take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. We're trying to move a little more quickly through this, uh, uh, through the gospel, because there are some things that we're going to be doing in the weeks to come or the months to come. Next Sunday, uh, men at 9 o'clock, we'll be in this study on pornography. I'm excited. I think it's as good a video series as I have seen in a very, very long time. I believe, men, that it will be life changing. Uh, Sheila and I sat and watched the first video, and I told uh, Sheila, I said, what do you think about the ladies looking at this first video in order that they might better understand this problem in the life of men, and perhaps in their own husbands, their own sons, and uh, I think that's what we'll do. We'll be viewing it. It is 47 minutes long the first video we can't afford for you to come meandering in here late we need you on time ladies be sure help us get your men here on time get the kids clothes get the clothes together on saturday evening get everything ready so that you can get here and be here on time because i'm excited about what god's going to do in this study also if you'll notice the chart over here Reggie and I were walking you through different points in the air there, and then at a certain point, um, we, uh, we gave that up and began to move in other directions. Iva May will be here this next Sunday, and she'll be speaking during the preaching portion of next Sunday morning's worship service. She'll be walking you through the entire Bible in story form. That's from Genesis to Revelation. Now, Iva May, Stan and Iva, Stan is a PhD, they wrote the material for the chronological Bible, the material that we've been using. Now, what she's going to do is she's going to do a lot of 
similar to what missionaries do all over the world, and that is to put the Bible, the story of redemption, in story form and chronological order. It will affect you. The leadership went through this last year. She did this. I don't know a person that wasn't deeply moved by it. You need to be here, and you need to encourage other people to be here because it is a, it is a great opportunity for us as a church. So uh, all God's people said, amen. amen. That means you'll be here and be here early and on time. Well, amen. And if you do that, if you're here early and you're on time, then our co-pastor, uh, Reggie Glenn, and his lovely wife, Tamara, will invite you to lunch for, at their home. Is that what you wanted me to say, Reggie? One at a time. One at a, one at a time. Well, amen. You, you there at Mark 9? Say amen. amen. Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 1, And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him. He led them up on a high mountain where they were all alone. And there he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared, enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead even meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come. And they have done to him everything they wish, just as it is written about him. Now when they came to the other disciples... They saw a large crowd around them, and the teachers of the law were arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder, and they ran to greet him. What are you arguing about? Jesus asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who, ro who is possessed by a spirit that robs him of speech. Whenever the spirit seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth. He gnashes his teeth and he becomes rigid. I ask your disciples to drive the spirit out, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving generation. Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long Shall I put up with you? Bring, bring the boy to me. So they brought him 
when the Spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground. He rolled and foamed at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From, from childhood. He answered, it has often thrown him into the fire and ordered to kill him, but if you could, but Master, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. <laughs> if, you, if you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I, I do believe. Help thou my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and dumb, mute spirit. He said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a, cult, a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, Lord, why couldn't we drive it out? That's a fair question, because in Mark chapter 6, they had been able to do that. Why not now? Jesus replied, this kind can come only out only by prayer. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. Let's pray again. Lord, we thank you, we love you, and we give you all the glory and honor. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Lord, cleanse me. Use me, dear Lord. Forgive me where I fail you. Cover me by the blood of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. How many of you have ever heard the word metamorphosis? Metamorphosis. If you uh, remember back to your science days, uh, you remember that term metamorphosis, and, and you remember that cocoon, that uh, worm, that caterpillar that would make that cocoon, and there that cocoon would lay until finally one day it would break open. And, now, and what would come out? Butterfly. And with all of its color and its splendor. I remember years ago when uh, God began to lay on my heart to visit my niece. Now my niece, my younger sister, Marcia, has three girls. Her oldest, Lori, the middle, Diane, and then the youngest was Marie. God laid Diane on my heart. Diane had been somewhat of a rebellious child, had been in and out of relationships, had four children, and... And, uh, but God began to put her on my heart. Now, I want you to know something. I kind of resented her. I had a problem with her because she had brought a lot of pain and hurt into the life of my sister. I'd watched my sister many times pick up the baggage of Diane's life. But God began to put Diane on my heart, and so I went there, and I told my sister this. I said, I believe that God has called me to talk to Diane. So at a certain point, my 26-year-old niece, who had four children, the youngest just a matter of a couple of months of age, uh, there came that moment when after we had eaten lunch at my sister's home, I asked to speak to Diane. Sheila was with me. 
this rebellious 26-year-old who had brought a lot of heartache into a lot of people's life was sitting there in the middle of the living room floor. My sister excused herself, went back to her bedroom and stayed there and began to pray. I began to talk to Diane about what it meant to be a Christian, about what it meant to be saved. And I could see semblances of that. But there came that moment when all of a sudden we began to talk. She said, Uncle Jeff, she said, I know that I'm saved. I know that I'm a Christian. And I know that my life doesn't bear evidence to that right now because she said, I have great difficulty when it comes to the friendships and the people around me and they pull me down. And I'll never forget at a certain point, I said, Diane, why don't you just leave those friendships? Why don't you just walk away from these people, pull away from that and be all that God intended you to do. She dropped her head, just sitting there on the floor. She began to weep uncontrollably. She looked at me and she said, I can't. I can't. It was in that moment that I knew why God had called me there. We prayed, we talked for a while, and not long after that, Diane was murdered. She was killed. She died. We're not really sure what happened because her boyfriend, her living boyfriend, had given her too much drugs and she had overdosed and she left four children. When we had her funeral, her funeral, because of my sister and the impact of her life of living there in the Destin for Walton, uh, Niceville area, because of that, there were bank presidents, there were people from loaning institutions, there were real estate, ERA, different real estate agencies, uh, agents and different people. There were leadership, there were governmental officials, people. That place was packed, many of them coming. When we went to the graveside at a certain point, my younger niece, her younger sister Marie, opened up a box and out of that came butterflies and they began to go everywhere. I asked Marie, I said, Marie, why? She said, because Diane always loved a butterfly. And I think sometimes when we look at this transfiguration of Jesus Christ, the word transfigured in the Greek is metamorphosis. And sometimes we look at our life and we see all of the shortcomings, all the sinful habits, the rebellions, the old habits, the old attitudes, the old struggles, the skeletons in the closet, the sins which doth so easily beset us. And sometimes we think to ourselves in that cocoon in this world that we're living in, we think, God, will I ever be a butterfly? Will I ever be conformed into the image of you? Will I ever look like you? Listen, look this way. Every single one of us will one day when we cross the Jordan and we stand before him. Right now we're a work in progress. And so when you look at, the, when you look at this event in the life of Jesus Christ, this is a metamorphosis. Jesus takes his disciples. He goes to a place that we believe is Mount Hermon. It's 9,600 feet up. It was probably in the foothills of Mount Hermon. He pulls his disciples aside because now it's the intensity of teaching. And at a certain point, he takes Peter, James, and John, and the Bible says that he goes up to a high mountain. 
and is there that he enters into a divine tribunal. Luke tells us that the disciples were kind of dozing. They were kind of in and out. Peter, James, and John, they were off to the side, but eventually they wake up and they witness this divine tribunal. There is Jesus Christ standing in all of his glory, and there with him is Moses, the lawgiver, Elijah the prophet. And they're in conversation. There are three things that you can notice. Number one is a clothing. If you look at this in the original Greek, it is the picture of glistening. It's almost glare. It's almost as if somebody were trying to look into the sun and look at the sun. I remember when I was a kid, I was always fascinated by the sun. And I remember one time looking at the sun too long. And for the longest, I couldn't see well, and I struggled to see. This is a similarity in the Greek. It's as if they see Jesus in all of his glory. It's glaring. It's glistening. It's, it's, like, polish, uh, it's like polished brass or gold. It's like looking into the sunlight. It's interesting. They've done studies of the soul. It is said that when a man or woman dies, that they lose a gram, that they lose, they lose weight, and they can't explain the loss of weight. But it is said that when you do certain images of a person, even people who have an amputee, an amputated leg or an arm, that you'll see an energy or a, a light or a source as if it's tracing out that arm and the leg even though it's been amputated. And I wonder sometimes if that's not a picture of the soul, of the spirit of man. And so the disciples see Jesus and, 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 and a cloud, the Bible says, Mark tells us here, who's influenced by Peter, he said that a cloud had come over the mountain. A cloud had come over the gathering. The Shekinah glory, what they had seen in the temple when they were wandering in the, in, the, in the wilderness. A cloud comes over, the Shekinah glory, and they recognize that they're in the presence of God. And out of this voice comes, this is my son. Listen to him. And then finally the conversation in verses 9 through 13 the disciples go on to talk to Jesus about, and I know we're moving quickly, but the disciples go on to talk to Jesus about trying to clear up. You have to understand something. The Jew in this time, these disciples thought that Jesus, the Messiah, the Christos, the Christ, would be a messianic figure that would be like out of the, out of the line of King David. He would be a conqueror, military might. And yet here they're seeing not a conquering Christ, but a crucified Christ, and that doesn't make sense. They've got to, they, they can't understand this. It is only after the death of Jesus Christ, the burial of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the ascension of Christ, that it all makes sense to them. They're on a mountain. You know, I wrote down here, I thought about some principles. I wrote down here, a mountaintop experience is not for tabernacling, but for teaching. Now, the tabernacle means, the Bible says Emmanuel. The word Emmanuel means this, means God will tabernacle with man. The tabernacle is a tent. It's a dwelling. And Peter, James, and John, when they get into this moment, they say to Jesus, they say, Lord, Peter says, Lord, and, and you remember this is Mark listening to Peter tell this story. Peter says, Lord, why don't we build some tabernacles? Why don't we build some dwellings? Let's just stay here. 
I don't want to lose this moment. You ever been in a moment and you don't want to let go of it? You want to hang on to it as long as you can? You want to put it to memory? They wanted to reside. They wanted to settle down. They wanted to stay there. You know, sometimes we want to do that in a mountaintop experience. Sometimes we create mountaintop experiences. Sometimes church, you know, as good as a worship service is, as good as it is, you know, children used to say this. You'd hear them say this. They still do. People would say this. I wish I could stay here. You know, some of you are reluctant to leave. Your tendency is to want to stay here. And a lot of times, if we're not careful, church becomes a mountaintop where we just want to stay here. We don't want to leave and go back into a broken, hurting world. Some churches are so comfortable, they're state-of-the-art. Sheila and I, we were driving by this church, and she said, my goodness, they're adding on again. And a lot of times, church can become so comfortable, so settled, we can be so settled that we never want to leave it. We want to stay in the fellowship, us four and no more, a holy huddle. We like a mountaintop experience and we want to stay there. So mountaintop experiences are for teaching. They're not for tabernacling. If you're on a mountain right now, there's something God is wanting to show you so that he can send you back down into the valley. In fact, I wrote down here that mountains are for revelation. They're not for retreat. Mountains equip us. Listen to what one writer said. Mountaintop experiences in our lives, spiritual, those spiritual experiences equip us to go back into our valleys or into the valleys of other people and to go with a fresh vision, a fresh revelation, a fresh sense of purpose back down into the valley where people are hurting. John Wesley at Altersgate said this, his conversion... You think sometimes, you know, I just don't have much of a conversion. I listen to some of these guys like Willie. I listen to Russell and man, I think, man, I don't have much of a testimony. I never did some of the things these guys did. I I just don't have much of a testimony. You know what John Wesley's testimony was? He was sitting, listening at Altersgate to the speaking, the, 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 the reading of God's word. And he said, my heart was strangely warmed. That was his conversion. Martin Luther was forever affected as he was running through a storm and lightning was striking all around him. And finally, Martin Luther, the great reformer, collapsed to his feet and began to cry out to God because he thought he was getting ready to be killed by a bolt of lightning. It forever changed him. John Newton was in the middle of a storm on a slave ship with slave traders when all of a sudden God shook him out of his apathy and his indifference and reminded him that the human cargo in the belly of that ship was wrong. And from that moment on, John Newton wrote the great song, Amazing Grace, and became a reformer and a leader to end slavery. Many a man or woman, Jim Elliot, Elizabeth Elliot, Elizabeth Elliot, as a senior adult years later, not long before she died, talked about the, what happened to her and Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott was the one who died with four other missionaries down in Central America taking the gospel. He's the one who said he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep for that which he cannot lose. 
Elizabeth Elliot said, what changed? How did you two come together? She said, Jim was an unbelievable, brilliant, good-looking man. Said he could have had any woman on the campus. He was absolutely apathetic and different. Cared nothing about romance. She said he was in love with Jesus Christ. He wanted to go to the mission field, and he was looking for somebody, if anybody, who might go with him. Elizabeth Elliot was told by her parents that she was such a homely girl. Her own parents told her that she was so homely looking, she probably would never get married. Isn't that funny? Elizabeth Elliot, now senior adult, long since Jim Elliot has been killed in the line of duty as a missionary, said that her and Jim Elliot, talking about when... She, but when they, when they got married or when, they, when he proposed or when they entered into this relationship, she said, well, she said, Jim and I, I was getting ready to go back to school. Jim was getting ready to go, uh, go, on a, uh, go to missions or to do something. She said, we were going in two different directions and we were trying to figure out if it was God's will for us to be together. She said that night we were walking through a cemetery when all of a sudden we came to a spot and we sat down on, a, on, on one of those flat concrete tombs on a grave, which the top of it was a slab of concrete. She sat down. She said we both sat there and began to talk about the call of God on our life and could we be married? Could we spend the rest of our lives together? And she said as we sat there, we began to cry and we began to talk very openly and honestly about the sacrifice of coming together, being married and going to, to a difficult field where people could just as soon kill you as listen to the gospel. She said, when all of a sudden the moon was setting, no, the moon was rising. She said, as the moon was coming up, she said, we didn't know it, but there was a cross behind us at, the, at that concrete slab that sat on top of that grave. She said, there was, a, there was a cross made out of concrete. She said, as Jim and I were sitting there trying to figure out, God, what is your will? God, it'll be a great sacrifice. She said, the moon was coming up and it cast the shadow of a, cro of a, of a cross, a shadow of a cross between Jim and I. She said, that was a clear sign that we would one day marry, and they did, but it would come with great sacrifice. Jim Elliot died at the hands of the people he was trying to convert. Let me tell you something. Mountaintop experiences are not for you and I to retreat or to tabernacle. Mountaintop experiences are to prepare us for the valleys that we face. In fact, it's clear. Alexander McLaren said this. I think it was McLaren that said this. He said, the height of your mountain may often reflect the depth of the upcoming valley. Now think about that for a minute. The height of your mountain... Whatever that mountaintop experience may be, may be God preparing you and getting you ready for the depth of the valley that you're about to face. Now that may scare you. You may say, well, you know, what are you saying? You mean a personal valley? No, sometimes God takes us up on a mountaintop, shows us things. We experience God. We have revelations because God is getting ready to send us into the valley of pain and suffering and hurt in the lives of other people. It's not always about us. And when you, when you get to this scene as Jesus is coming back down off the mountain, here Peter, James, and John, they're just in conversation. And as they're making their way back down to this scene, all of a sudden it is a crowd in its bedroom. He looks and there's nine of his disciples. There's Thomas, there's Matthew. There's Judas. Judas. 
And he looks at the dynamic of what's taking place. It's as if there's a great controversy, as if something is wrong. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes into that scene. He says, he, he looks at his disciples. He said, because they had cowered down, they were off to the side. He said, what are you arguing about? Did you notice the disciples don't even come forward? Do you notice the disciples are silent? Do you notice that they didn't say, Lord, i tell you what's going on here. They didn't say a word. Do you know where they were? They were back over on the peripheral. They were hiding. Because in essence, the scribes had made a mockery out of them and were laughing at them. Why? Because they were anemic and powerless. Let me tell you something, folks. We are living in a day when the reality is that much of the world and even our own society here in America is laughing at the church. We may have big buildings. We may have a lot of money. We may have staffs who are making six-figure salaries. We may have coffee shops in the foyer. We may put look, we may we may smoke up, we may jack up, we may amp up, we may do all of these things in an attempt to create a mountaintop experience in the average church today, and we spend millions and millions of dollars to do it to be comfortable on the mountaintop. There's only one problem, look this way. For many churches today and much of the evangelical movement in America today, we are powerless. And deep down in the heart of so many, they recognize that. And we are cowards when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ and standing boldly for our faith. We're too busy trying to win a world by the ways of the world. They're powerless. And I wrote down here, I thought, you know, the nine is a picture of a follower of Christ who is not periodically at times on the mountain. Sometimes you and I need to set aside time to where we go up, to mount, up, to, up the mountain, we get into intimate fellowship with Christ, and we wait for a revelation. We wait for some kind of insight. These disciples didn't have the experience that Peter, James, and John had. They were powerless. And let me tell you, look this way. If you and I do not spend time in the Word of God, in prayer, in fellowship, intimate fellowship with Jesus Christ, we will be powerless as we go out into the world. You can't give to people what you don't have. Can't do it. They were powerless. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes into this valley and he's facing a distraught dad. This dad is there with his son. His son is a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week responsibility. His life is consumed. It's, dis it's defined by his son. He can't seem to live. What's happened here? Number one, the disciples are anemic. They're powerless. Number two, we have a dad who's discouraged and now is more defeated because he can't even find answers from the place that he thought he could. He's more broken. And the religious leaders, the critics are empowered. The scribes are laughing. They're enjoying this moment. Wow. The Bible goes on to say that the followers, the problem with the followers of Jesus Christ, these nine is a faith problem. Look at verses 28 and 29. 
Jesus said after Jesus, after Jesus had gone indoors, after he had healed this son, his disciples would ask him privately. And I've, I've dealt with this passage extensively in our God, when we went through the Gospel of Luke and did it a while back. So I'm not going to go through all of it again. But in verse 28, it says Jesus goes indoors. His disciples then ask him privately, the nine disciples, Lord, why couldn't we drive it out? Why, why were we powerless? Why were we anemic? We weren't in Mark chapter 6. We were casting out demons and multitudes of demons. What's the problem now? The problem was the reason they were powerless, there was no intimacy, there was no solitude, there was not the time that they had spent in quiet time with God. They had a faith problem. This year we're going to do something different. Chronological Bible we did last year. This year we're doing something different. And um, it, it, it basically comes from a form of meditation by a man by the name of St. Benedict. St. Benedict was a monk. He was uh, famous for the monastery. The rules and the guidelines of the modern day monasteries go back to St. Benedict. I wrote this down. St. Benedict was a leader in Europe at a time when there was great when there was great moral depravity, when there were wars, when there was much suffering. Uh, and um, he, he came up in the Latin, it's, I think it's Lectio, Divina, uh, Lectio Divina, Divina. Lectio Divina. It, it, in the Latin, it means divine reading. And basically what St. Benedict began to do in the monasteries and among the followers of Christ and among the Christian community, he began to say, let's take the Word of God, let's read a passage of it. Then let's spend time praying over that passage. Then let's meditate on that passage and then let's contemplate what that passage means in my life. So I thought about that. I, uh, at one time I was going to memorize the book of Hebrews. I got to chapter 7 before I, I, I kind of gave it up, and I want to do that this year. But this is what it means. It means to take a passage. Let me give you one. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says this, that the Son, Jesus Christ, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word after he provided purification for sin he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high I write that verse down on a card I begin to think over it, contemplate begin to mull over it pray over it. I begin to say, God, what are you saying to me in that passage? That the Son, Jesus Christ, is the radiance of your glory and the exact representation of your being, of your will. What does that mean? Because God, a lot of times I think to myself, God, who is God? Who is the Creator? How can I know Him? If you've seen Jesus, said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Your God is Jesus Christ in flesh. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The characteristics, the nature of Jesus Christ, the forgiving, the loving, un, 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 unmerited, unearned love that you see in Jesus Christ is exactly a reflection of the Father. He loves you. And after he provided purification for your sin and my sin, the Bible said that he sat down at the right hand of the Father in heaven. 
And he makes intercession for you and I. This idea of taking the word of God and beginning to write it on cards and beginning to put it to memory, mulling over it, thinking about it. These disciples, I believe from Mark 6 to Mark 9, had a faith problem because they had not spent intimate time in fellowship with Christ. I don't think Jesus, when he got ready to go up to the mountain, said, Peter, James, John, I want you three to go with me. You guys stay behind. I think that if Thomas had, I think if Thomas had been over here, hey, let me ask you, what you would have done? What would you have done? If you were over here milling around with the other 12, and Jesus said, uh, He's getting ready to go up on a mountain. And, and, and he says, Peter, James, John, come on, I want you guys to go with me. Lord, Lord, Lord I don't want to stay here. Lord, I don't want to stay in the valley. Lord, I don't want to, I don't want to stay here, Lord. I want to go with you. Now, Peter, James, John, Lord, 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 I... Lord, I want to go with you. Lord, please, I, I'm begging. You, you ever see your kids just say, they grab you by the ankles and they sit on your feet and they, and they refuse to let you move unless you pull them along. And you, you, know, you know what that scene is. You got that toddler, they're wrapped around your leg. You just, you, you could imagine if you had been there, if I had been there, I'd say, Lord, no, I, I'm not going to miss this moment, Lord. I'm going with you. I don't know what you're going to do in the mountain, but it's got to be good. I'm not staying here. Let me tell you what, the nine were content to stay behind. I don't think they had a passion, a desire, an urgency. And I'm telling you this much, when you and I draw near to God, the Bible says, the promise of God says, I'll draw near to you. I think when we passionately pursue Him, when we live for purity and holiness, and we begin to be holy, even as He is holy, I think He begins to draw near to us. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You haven't seen God lately? Man. God, I'm... Jesus, I'm not going to let you go without me. i got to go. Peter, James, John, Alicia. Peter, James, John, John number two. Peter, James, John, hi, Russell. Peter, James, John, come on in. Miss Bobby. What do you want God to do in your life this year? Are we living in the last days? I don't know. But I know this, I want to be ready. That father brings his son. That son begins to go into a fit. Jesus, as Jesus is walking up to this dad, he's holding his son. He said, Lord, I, I'm at the end of my rope. I've been taking this problem too long and I can't do it anymore. He's a broken parent. You know, Jesus says things he doesn't normally do. He says, how long has he been like this? He never asked that before. He's calming the dad. Because the dad is discouraged and defeated because of the nine, they bombed out. 
He's calming the dead. How long has the boy been like that? The father says he's been like this his whole life. Lord, if I turn my back, he's as apt to throw himself in the fire. If I turn my back, he's as apt to throw himself in the water. Lord, I, it, it, Lord it's a 24-hour a day, seven day a week. Lord, I'm just exhausted. And if you can do anything, Lord, if you, if you can do anything, if you, if, you can, if you can help us, Lord, help us. And Jesus, I think, smiled and said, if I can. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The words of Paul later to be uttered in the book of Philippians are ringing out right now because all things are possible. Listen to that. All things are possible to them that believe. Have you given up? You quit believing? You lost faith? You're facing a problem that doesn't seem to have an answer? Men ought always to pray and never give up. Seek and you shall find. Keep seeking. Knock, keep knocking. Don't give up. Don't lose faith. He says to the Father, He says, All things are possible for him who believes. Do you believe? The man says, Lord. My faith is so beat up and so tired, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. You there? Losing faith? Faith under fire? Sitting in classes at work among your peers, among people that are causing you to question your faith, to doubt the certainty of Scripture, going through a time of a crisis? Let me tell you something. God can handle your doubt. R.C. Sproul wrote a great book on this, on, on doubting. God doesn't have a problem with your doubts. He has a problem with your unbelief. He can handle your doubts. Just take it to Him. What is God going to have to do in your life and in my life? I want you to stand. I want to close with a story. Because I can tell you this much. I'd rather be the three coming down off the mountain than the nine that were down in the valley. Wouldn't you? Man powered up, ready to go back in that valley, ready to face whatever I face in the school, at my work, wherever it may be. Powered up filled with the Holy Spirit, under the control of the Holy Spirit. That's where I want to be. I want to be coming down off a mountain with Jesus. I want God to do some things this year in 20... I want 2018 to be the best year of my life. I really do. I want me to come to the end of 2018 and not look back with regret. I want to look at a relationship where I can smile and say, you know, I feel closer to the Lord. God's been doing some things. I thank God for 2018. Let me read you this story. It's called Moving Forward Means Leaving Behind. Now listen to that. Moving Forward Means Leaving Behind. It said after the Civil War and an incident recounted by Charles Flood in his book, Lee, The Last Days, Robert E. Lee visited a woman who took him to the remains of a grand old tree in front of her home. There she looked at General Lee and she cried bitterly. Its limbs, the limbs of the tree and the trunk had been destroyed by the Union artillery fire. She waited for General Lee to condemn the North or at least sympathize with her loss. But Lee, who himself knew the horrors of war, had suffered the pain of defeat, said to the woman, cut it down, my dear madam, and then forget it. 
In the late 1990s, Pete Peterson was appointed U.S. ambassador to Vietnam. Peterson said that he served six years as a prisoner of war, a POW, in the dreaded Hanoi Hilton prison camp. When asked how he could return to the land, Vietnam, where he had endured such starvation, brutality, and torture, he replied, he said, I'm not angry. I left that at the gates of the prison when I walked out in 1972. I just left it behind me and decided to move forward with my life. The writer closed by saying, when you're tempted, and I'm tempted to get even with those who have hurt you, remember that you can't go back. You can't stay where you are, but by God's grace, you can move forward one step at a time. And maybe some of you here today need to leave 2017 and the pain and the hurt and the trials and the difficulties and all of the anger and the unforgiveness and the bitterness in your heart, you need to leave it at the foot of the cross and begin 2018 fresh. Put it behind you. Come down off the mountain with a fresh revelation and a commitment to the purpose of God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we just come to you, and Lord, we thank you. We praise you, Lord. You alone are worthy. What a beautiful passage, Scripture. What a glimpse into the character and the nature of Jesus Christ. We can, we can just see you, Lord, tenderly looking at a broken parent, a dad distraught, defeated, discouraged, putting your hand upon this dad's shoulder and smiling at him and calming him and saying, how long has your son been like this? It's those moments in the ER when we walk in with a child and they're fevered and sick. And we walk up to the desk and forms are filled out and we feel like just one more person in a crowded waiting room and all of a sudden the door opens as a nurse. There's a figure that comes and with a smile on her face, gently, quietly, or man or woman, and walks us into that waiting room and puts her hand on our shoulder. A doctor who comes in and puts his hand on the shoulder or her hand on the shoulder of a broken parent and says, uh, how long has your child been running fever? Who smiles and calms the room by their presence. Lord, I want to be that kind of person. I want, dear Lord, the mountain this year to be in the presence of Jesus Christ and to feel that when I walk into a room, the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit is calming and ministering to the broken, hurting, suffering lives. I pray, dear Lord, and I pray for every one of us as we begin 2018, that Lord, first of all, that we know that we're saved. That's settled. If we don't know that, to settle that today, come forward and say, Reggie, Ledge, Brother Jeff, I, I just don't know. I've, I've got to get this right. For some of us, we've been saved, but never been baptized. It's never been in the right order. We need to be baptized. We need to make it public identifying with the body of Christ. For some of us in this room, we need to plan our life here.
begin to commit. But beyond that, dear Lord, for all of us here, we need to cut down 2017. We need to put some things to rest. We need to forgive where forgiveness is needed. We need to set aside bitterness and anger and hostility and allow the love of Jesus Christ to be the very character and nature of who we are. We need to come down off the mountain with a fresh revelation of Jesus Christ. A fresh commitment to the purpose of his kingdom as it comes to this earth. We pray, dear Lord, that you would uh, heal us of any hurts, any wrongs. That you would encourage us, Lord, where we become discouraged because we've been praying about somebody we love and they've not yet made the turn. We're still battling. We pray, dear Lord, that you'll comfort us. Strengthen our faith. And may we move into this year with a fresh commitment to Christ. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.